Good morning, everyone. The reading which Ian read for us today is a familiar one, part of the great speech, the first public speech of Peter, the big fisherman, the one always likely to put his big foot in it, to rush to action, the one who had denied Jesus three times. Normally, we read this passage at Pentecost, remembering the coming of the Holy Spirit and concentrating on that. But today, I want to look at it more for what Peter said, the first great statement of the Christian faith by the apostles, the essence of our faith. See what Peter says. Jesus was accredited to you by God. He was put to death by you and wicked men on the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Today, we're continuing our look at Jesus, who he was and is, why he came, how he became our saviour, what happened after his life here was over, what does it have to do with us? In the first week, we saw that he claimed to be the Son of God, equal with God, because he was able to forgive sins, he did miracles, and he allowed people to worship him. So he cannot be just a good man. A good man wouldn't pretend to be something he is not. There are only three options possible. He was mad, he was bad, or he was God. Last week, we saw that he was an example to others, showing us how we should live. He was a great teacher, telling us how we should live. He was a healer. He was a messenger, bringing some advice or information from God to us. But most of all, he came from God in response to the problem of sin. Jesus claimed that the purpose of his coming was to deal with sin. Jesus was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's Matthew 22 verses 37 to 40. If we're not perfect, then we have fallen short of God's standards. The issue is not whether we are as good as anyone else, but whether we are perfect, like God. Perfection is seen in our being completely at peace with others, with ourselves, with creation, and with God. So if we're not perfect, that is, we've not fully lived up to that standard, we're in need of forgiveness and renewal, so that we might become fit for such living, for living in a relationship with God. But we know that we cannot do this by ourselves, for ourselves. That is why God has provided a saviour. That is what Jesus came to do, to be the one through whom we can be forgiven and renewed, so that we can be part of God's new creation. So, how did he do that? When Jesus spoke to his disciples about his death as an offering for sin, he was saying that his main work was to die for sin. Not for his sin, but for the sins of others. 
We might describe God's character as being like a coin with two sides. On one side is his justice, and on the other, his love. Because he is just and holy, he ought to condemn us for the things we have done that are wrong, and for the good things that we could have done but did not do. But because he loves us, he longs for us to be his friends again. How can both his justice and his love be satisfied? Jesus did not come to earth simply to tell us to stop sinning. We know from our experience that however hard we try, we cannot simply stop sinning and become perfect. Nor did he take away the effects of sin. We still live in a world full of pain and hurt and a creation that is clearly still spoiled. So what did he try to do and how did he go about it? He became a sacrifice for sin, for our sin. He took our sins upon himself and freely offered himself as a sacrifice to God on our behalf to take away our punishment for sin if we believe in him as our savior. That's why the cross has become the main symbol of the Christian church in its various forms. Not a picture of Jesus healing, not a picture of bread and loaves, not a picture of Jesus teaching from a boat or on a mountain. And in the, early, in the, in the days of the early church, in Roman times, that would have been an incredible symbol to use, an abomination. The cross was the symbol of crucifixion, the ultimate penalty for criminals and corrupt men, a sign of shame, violence, revulsion, disgrace. Whatever else, it wasn't a symbol that you would use for someone who was a hero. The nearest I can imagine to something similar today would be a swastika, a symbol of a corrupt and deluded power to those in the West after it was used by the Nazis. Although surprisingly, a religious symbol of divinity, spirituality, prosperity, and good luck in Eastern religions. But the amazing thing about this whole story is that God and Jesus were in charge of the whole sequence of events from start to finish. All of the gospel writers spend considerable time in the events of the last week. Currently, I'm making my way through John's gospel, and the striking feature is the way events came to a head over the week, culminating in Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. But right from the outset of his ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to know if Jesus was the promised Messiah, if he was to be the king of the Jews, and particularly if he represented a threat to their position, their power, their prestige in the Jewish nation. For his part, Jesus was at pains at times to keep a low profile, not to incite a political rebellion, not to make claims that would cause a premature confrontation. But matters came to a head, starting with the resurrection of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, in John chapter 11, when many of the Jews believed in him and the chief priests and the Pharisees decided that the only course open to them was to kill Jesus. As Caiaphas said in John 11:50, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people 
and let the whole nation perish. Of course, it wasn't the whole nation that he was concerned about, but their exalted position within it. But Jesus' response to this was to withdraw to the wilderness, and he no longer moved about publicly among the people until his entry into Jerusalem as king, which incensed the Pharisees further because of the adulation of the crowds. Soon after this, again Jesus left and hid himself from them, John 12:36, except when he was in the temple courts surrounded by followers, so they couldn't touch him until after the Last Supper, when Satan had entered into Judas to betray him. Now, any sensible man would have hid himself again, so Judas and the priests couldn't find him. But instead, this time, Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, a favorite spot for recuperation and prayer, as Judas would well know. It was as if Jesus was saying, my time has come now, come and get me. I'll make it easy for you. And so Jesus was arrested by soldiers and officials, betrayed with a kiss, was tried by the high priest, and then taken to Pilate, the Roman governor, because the Jewish leaders could not kill him themselves. Their charge was that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate couldn't find any evidence against him, so tried to set him free but his own position depended on keeping the peace in Jerusalem and placating the Jewish leaders. So he gave in and sent Jesus to be crucified. The point is, first, Jesus died unjustly. He never did anything wrong. He was put to death unfairly at the hands of evil men. The Jewish and Roman authorities worked together to get rid of him. Their reasons were various their motives mixed, but Jesus had to go. Jesus died willingly. For all the scheming of others, Jesus was not taken by surprise. He had earlier predicted what was going to happen. He arranged things so that he was arrested when he was ready. He went to one of his usual haunts that night so that he could be found. He remained in Jerusalem that night so that his enemies could get him under the cover of darkness. Jesus died purposefully. He had stressed all along, not only that he would die, but that as a promised saviour, he must die. Nothing less than his death would bring about the promised salvation. What did it all mean for Jesus to die for our sins? First of all, he took the punishment for us. We deserve death, cut off from God's love and mercy, but he took our place. Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We're all held captive to our sins. Through the death of Jesus, God buys us back to be his own. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God had been at a great distance from his people. Even the high priest could only enter once a year into the most holy place in the temple, separated from the inner court by the curtain. 
But at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain was ripped in two. God welcomed us back into his family through the sacrifice of Jesus. We are reconciled to God. But the vital thing about the Christian message is not just about the crucifixion of Jesus, but that his death is not the end. Not only is this Jesus being described as the Son of God, not only is he making a great sacrifice on the cross, offering forgiveness to those who believe him, but he is spoken of as having come back to life. He is described as one who is still alive and who we can meet and know. Son of God is one thing, risen and alive is another. Son of God may be an interesting idea, but an encounter with someone who lived all those years ago, that's something else altogether. The Gospel writers and Paul make it quite clear. Christianity stands or falls by the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith, said Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. People who doubt the fact of the resurrection focus on two main issues. We need to be clear how we answer them. The first objection to the resurrection is that Jesus was never really dead at all and somehow recovered. Balderdash. Look at what Jesus went through even before the crucifixion itself. He was flogged. They used a whip of leather thongs with small pieces of metal or bone tied to them. A crown of thorns was put in his head by soldiers who knew how to make it hurt. Ouch! He was slapped repeatedly in the face. He was vilified, mocked, spat on, beaten on the head repeatedly with a staff. He was unable to carry his own cross despite being a young fit man of 33. Simon of Cyrene had to carry it for him. By the time they came to Calvary, he was probably half dead already and certainly very weak. Crucifixion must be one of the worst ways to die, a brutally effective torture and death. Nails through your wrists and ankles causing dreadful pain. Unable to breathe at times because you couldn't bear the pain in your wrists and slumped down. But then excruciating pain in your ankles. Eventually, unable to push yourself up to breathe again because of exhaustion, you died. Because it was the day of preparation before a special Sabbath, the Jewish leaders asked for those crucified to have their legs broken so they would be dead and taken down before the Sabbath. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Now, Roman centurions were used to crucifixion and used to battle, so they knew when someone was dead. And if the centurion was in any doubt, he would have killed him, for the penalty for getting it wrong would have been the same punishment. But just to make sure, one of the soldiers took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side, bringing forth a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, doctors like me would reckon the only situation where that could have happened would be if the soldier's spear went from below through the stomach and into the heart or great blood vessels, all of which injuries would have been fatal in themselves. So be in no doubt, 
Jesus was well and truly dead. And even if by some miracle he survived all that, he would then have to be in the tomb for two days without food or water, unravel all the grave clothes that were around him, move the heavy stone, and escape without the guards ever noticing. Come on. I said earlier, Jesus was mad, he was bad, or he really was the Son of God. I would go even further. No man in his right mind would go through what Jesus did as a deception to deceive people. To my mind, you've only got two choices. Jesus was a raving lunatic, or he was the Son of God. The other objection to the resurrection is that the tomb wasn't empty. No one can rise from the dead. But again, look at the facts. There was a big stone across the tomb. Who moved it? How did the guards not notice anything? The disciples were surprised that he was not in the tomb. They weren't expecting this. If the Jewish leaders had stolen and moved the body, when the disciples started preaching about Jesus' resurrection, starting with Peter in Acts 2, all the Jewish leaders had to do was produce the body. They couldn't, and they never found it. The best they could do was to bribe the guards with a large sum of money to put out a story that the disciples made off with the body, and they put in a good word with the governor to stop them being punished. That's in Matthew 28, 11 to 15. But then, what about the disciples themselves? They preached about the resurrection, and many of them were ultimately put to death for their testimony. All they had to do was admit that something else had happened. There'd been a conspiracy. But none of them ever did. They stuck to their story, even to death. And then look how many people saw Jesus after his resurrection. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome and Joanna, Peter, Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. The disciples more than twice, first without Thomas and then with him, when Jesus ate some fish. 500 disciples at once, unnamed, but as Paul recounts, still alive at the time of writing to the Corinthians. If you didn't believe them, you could always go and ask them yourself. Finally, Paul on the road to Damascus. Plenty of eyewitness accounts there, more than enough for any newspaper reporter to say his story was well corroborated. After the cross, Jesus' disciples were demoralized and defeated. The end of their hopes had come. They were in hiding because of their fear of the Jewish leaders. They wanted to give up and even go back to their old occupations. A few days later, they were risking their lives to tell others about Jesus. Their witness was to turn the world upside down. What made the difference? Since those days, many others down through the years in many countries, rich and poor, wise and unlearned, young and old, have met the risen Jesus and have been able to say how their lives have been changed by that encounter. So Jesus died for our salvation. He defeated sin. He rose again at the resurrection. He defeated death. What a weekend, a double whammy. So we can be reconciled to God 
and have the gift of eternal life. When Peter addressed the crowds for the first time at Pentecost, he summed up the whole of the Christian message, the whole of the gospel or good news. Jesus was accredited by God, put to death and brought to, back to life again, and we are all witnesses of it. God made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. Jesus conquered sin and Satan by his sacrifice on the cross. He conquered death with his resurrection, with the promise of eternal life to those who believed in him. After Peter's speech, the crowds asked Peter, what shall, we, what shall we do? What does it all mean for us? What happened next? As Bruce Forsyth used to say, can you come back next week? Or at the children's Saturday morning matinees at the cinema, to be continued in next week's exciting episode. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer now. O oh Lord, thank you that you died for us, taking our sin upon yourself to bring us salvation, to bring us into the family of God. Thank you that you rose from the grave to conquer death, to reveal your promise of eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We are all sinners, but now we live in hope. Thank you. Amen. <laughs>